Are you looking for the perfect bracelet for a loved one? Would your man be interested in a personalized keyring from his children? Are you looking for the best priced jewelry, whether it be a necklace, ring, earrings, bangle, or even more? Look no further than Crafted Arts. Crafted Arts is a local business based in Barry within the Vale of Morgan, and they have a range of all the perfect items you need. If it's for the perfect gift for an anniversary, or maybe it's for someone's birthday, maybe something for Christmas, or you wanted to give someone that perfect gift that will last a long time, Crafted Arts is the business for you. If you want to know more or see what they have in stock, then you can visit them locally at 29 High Street, Barry, Villag Morgan, CF627EB. Or you can go onto their website at www.craftedarts.co.uk. You can even email them at info at craftedarts.co.uk or maybe just give them a call at 07789942248. Trust me, it's worth it for the perfect gift. The best thing about Creative Space is that we don't just want to encourage people in being creative in TV, film, or even theater. We also want you to be creative in a variety of other things as well. So do you want to have experience in making jewelry? Do you want to pick up a hobby, but do not know what to take or where to start, then look no further than the Veil Jewelry Workshops. Veil Jewelry Workshops provides the best experience in teaching you how to make the best sterling silver jewelry. They will help you make a range of silverware, including rings, bracelets, and many more pieces. You will learn the basic silversmith skills, such as soldering, texturing, shaping, and lots more. Not only do the workshops provide the experience for adults, it also provides the best experience and fun for children as well. So if you want to learn on how to make sterling silver jewelry, and if you're very interested, go onto their website at www.veildewerryworkshops.co.uk or get in touch with them via email at info at veildewerryworkshops.co.uk or even phone them at 077-89-794248. Hey guys, how's it going? My name is Reese Deans of Creator Space Podcast and I am your host Trilly once again. My guest on this podcast is Dennis Lehane. Dennis Lehane, the author behind some of the most successful books, including Mystic River, Shutter Island, Live By Night, Gone Baby Gone, The Drop. And those books I've mentioned already, they have been adapted and turned into movies, big blockbuster motion picture movies, you know, directed by the likes of Clint Eastwood, Martin Scorsese and Ben Affleck. I mean, the list goes on. I mean, this this man is so talented. He's also the developer of uh, Blackbird as well on Netflix. But we didn't just talk about those books. We had to talk about Small Mercies because if you haven't already, I highly, highly recommend you guys stop what you're doing now. Stop listening to this podcast. Go out into the open world. Go to Waterstones. Go to WH Smith. If not, order it on Amazon. Get Small Mercies. Trust me, guys. It is worth the read. This man is so talented. He's such a genius. I love Small Mercies. As soon as I got the book, I couldn't put it down, honestly. So if you haven't already, it's out in stores now, Small Mercies. That's what we talked about. And we talk about a lot of things as well. We, we talk about, like I said, about his books being made into films, working with people in Hollywood, um, how he was teaching as well, teaching his way of creating plot characters, his friendship with Stephen King. We talked about a lot of things. I know I'm going to repeat myself, so stop myself while I'm ahead. Just listen to this podcast, guys. It's me and Dennis Lehane on Creative Space Podcast. Dennis Lehane on my podcast here, and you've just recently had a book published and... Oh, you went again. <laughs> yeah, I had a book published called Sm- Small Mercies. Mm-hmm. And I've read the book and I absolutely loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. And one of my favorite elements of the book is, of course, gangsters. I love my gangsters. Uh, I love the, the the films, the books, anything to do with yeah. gangsters. I love it. But one of the before I go on to Small Mercies, I've always wanted to ask any author this question is, 
why did you want to be an author? Oh, I don't think it was a a real conscious choice. It was something that I I just needed to do from a pretty young age. It was it was uh, uh, it was a place I felt safe to go into my imagination, and I felt this way of sort of ordering the world. I think a lot of people become writers because they they make they make order out of chaos. Chaos is regular life. Writing is order, ordering of regular life. It's the ordering of it's a telling a story with a beginning and a middle and an end. Most stories in our real lives don't have beginning or middle and end. We do this, we do that. It's not really connected. We decide maybe we're going to go over here and do this. And if you made a story that was really about real life, I don't think anybody would want to watch it. Um, so I think, you know, it was just a, then when I was 20, after I dropped out of two colleges, I I came to the realization that it was the only thing I was good at was making stuff up. And so I, I remember going to my parents and saying, I think I'm going to try to become a writer. And they were like, um, okay. <laughs> uh, and they, you know, they supported me and that was, I was very grateful for that. When it comes to, so when it did came to, you know, after all writing these books and everything, you know, Mr. River, Chateau Island, et cetera. When it yeah. comes to small mercies, um, one of the questions I've always wanted to ask people uh, when it comes to, writing stories that involves gangsters and everything is um, is because of the character Mary's search for her daughter. Yeah. And, you know, and she, she gets the help against the attention from the, uh, the, the Irish mob, etc. cetera. Um, from what I gathered, it's like, it, I don't know if I read it completely wrong. Cause sometimes I do read when I read a book, I, I sometimes miss a tip and I have to go back and think, okay, but it looks as though he doesn't want the attention, etc. But do you think or believe you wanted to show how one crime boss, one crime boss's business can turn into a quote unquote deadly personal pursuit for justice? In other words, one ignorance is another person's downfall, etc. Well, um, so I'm not sure what's the, what is the exact question there? Uh, so, yeah. So basically, uh, did you, uh, did you just want to, cause every time I, I was trying to explain this in a little bit more detail. One of the things I've always noticed in, uh, gangster films, they always say it's nothing, it's not personal, it's business. Yeah. And one of the things I always wanted to see happen is because, um, the person that's been affected, obviously it's, it's, it's personal. So, did you ever, what I'm trying to say is, did you ever try to make it clear in some ways that this crime boss, this this crime boss yeah, yeah. is is in a lot of deep trouble? A lot of deep no. trouble. Um, yeah. No, I didn't feel like, what the. I mean, the idea of the story is, uh, it's got some basis in, in reality, mm. is that, you know, uh, desegregation of the Boston Public Schools is about to take place in the summer of 1974. And that caused a lot, a lot of violence and strife in uh, the entire city, but also particularly in South Boston, which is where the book is set. And uh, the idea was that they were going to be busing in African-American children uh, to desegregate the public schools. So uh, and they were going to bus out white children to go to predominantly African-American neighborhoods. The the people who financed um, a lot of the anti-busing movement were, in in reality, the Irish Mafia. And so in this book, um, as Mary Pat begins to stir things up and kick hornet's nests and make a lot of noise in the neighborhood, the local crime boss comes to her and says, you can't do this. You know, we have big, huge national coverage coming into this neighborhood, and they can't be looking at me because if they look at me, they're going to ask how this neighborhood really runs. And I can't have them asking that question. Mm. Then I'm going to be in trouble. Then I'm going to go potentially go to jail. So um, she, he, he's not he, the, the local crime boss, Marty Bartlett, is he just he's just determined not to have bad press. He's not to have he doesn't want people looking at him. So he becomes a big obstacle to her search. Mm. Do you know when the, when it comes to 
writing Small Mercies, what was the intentions? What was the goal for you in writing Small Mercies? Um, well, part of it was I, I wanted to um, I wanted to look at the summer of 1974 when I was a kid and 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 um, it, I think finally process it, finally make sense of it. I had been, um, I think as a child, completely overwhelmed by the events that happened that summer. Um, I couldn't understand why people were throwing rocks at buses with school children in them. Couldn't understand why people were were hanging uh, effigies from street lamps and lighting them on fire. I couldn't understand why people were were spray painting KKK and kill all the N words on on graffiti all over my city. And I I think I spent most of my life trying to figure it out. And so this book became kind of a, a purging when I wrote it. So like a, a lesson then a lesson and try to find some clarity yeah i would say a lesson i don't like to preach uh no. <laughs> no it was more it was more um a purging for me it was more an exorcism it was more a way of me trying to process what had happened in some ways to my my psyche at, at nine years old at a very young age to mm -hmm. try to process a lot of hatred and and racism and violence uh it was it was very hard to deal with when i was a kid for sure i'm reading the i'm reading the uh the book and especially the character of uh of mary mary pat um there's a lot of um obviously of course racist traits within the yep. story and there could be some people who pick up the book and they're reading it and obviously they're seeing the um this chain smoker this person who likes to drink and they've got this racist traits in them yep. in within a, um some a lot of people could say or ask why should i care about this character so how if if i ask you this why should we care about this character what would you say to those people well you just i would just say you know um read the book or don't i mean <laughs> she you know she's an extremely flawed character on one hand she is a racist her uh she's her husband has left her and the reason he left her is he said because your hate embarrasses me and she doesn't understand that at the beginning of the book she has no clue what he's talking about by the end of the book she knows exactly what he's talking about and so it's her journey um of discovery about not only is she a racist but like all racists she's passed that racism down to her children. And, and that has caused a numerable level of tragedy across the community. So on one hand, she's very much not a hero. On the other hand, she has these qualities in her. Um, she's a, she's an absolute fighter. She's extremely loyal to those she loves. And she goes, and she's fearless, ultimately. And so the journey she goes on to discover what happened to her daughter is a heroic journey. She's the hero of that story. Mm. The journey that she goes on in terms of her social and racial viewpoint is a very negative journey in which in the end she realizes her legacy as a human being, some of it has been to pass along hate. And that's, that's a horrible legacy to have to live mm. with. Yeah. Somewhat, she, she's some of a well, not somewhere. I mean, from reading it, she, she's had a lot of tragedy in her life. So, in a way, because she's a tragic character, you want the people to still sympathize with her in some ways. That look, you you want you want to look for the, you your daughter, the only part you. I want you. Yeah. I want people to empathize. Look, we're empathize. all part of, we're all part of the human race, you know, mm. and and the best of us has the devil, you know, at the at the heart of his heart of his soul the worst of us has a decent little kid somewhere inside of him you know like there's there's you know there's there's paradoxes in people you know and people are paradoxes and i don't like writing about people who are all good or all bad i find that just utterly boring mm. and i'm it, yeah so when it comes to when you attempt to uh, write a story mm -hmm. when you come up when you come up with a story um, when do you know 
that this story is going to be a novel or this story is going to be a, a screenplay in the future? Um, if I respond to it at a really strong emotional level, it's going to be a novel. Mm. If uh, if it's if it's more intellectual to start off, then it's going to be a screenplay. And how do you attempt to hook on to your readers without without them when they're reading the book without them nodding off or just putting it down after a couple of page, pages? What is your attempt when you write a book that you're trying to not let your readers put it down after a short period of time, but want them to keep going and make sure they turn to the next page and go, oh, I want to hear, I want to see, read more. I want to see what happens next. I mean, you know, I don't know. There's, 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 that's, there's no simple, easy answer to that. That's why people study this for 10 years before they become writers. It takes about 10 years to become a good writer. Um, but what you want is to tell a compelling story. And so, you know, you want to, you want to begin it exactly where it should begin. This book begins exactly with her waking up, her power's been shut off. Uh, her daughter's uh, talking about her fear about being bussed over to an African-American neighborhood to go to school. And um, everything's set in motion. Her daughter goes out on a date that night and doesn't come home. And so, you know, you don't start the story six months before those events. You know, you start the story that right then. And so by the end of chapter two, her daughter has not come home. And, mm -hmm. and, but beginning in chapter one, literally page two, you have the busing crisis front and center. It comes in. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, another easy way is, you know, not easy. It's very hard actually, but you know, are, are you invested as a writer in the main character? Well, if you're invested, your reader probably will be. If you if you make them interesting enough, and I think Mary Pat, you know, not to blow my own horn, but I do believe that Mary Pat is interesting from the first page. She just she's unlike a lot of characters we've ever seen before. Hmm. So. Can you, yeah, could you tell me more about the uh, the the segregation in in Boston? Because obviously, me being from the UK and everything, and right. I'm not. Would you uh, kindly just sure, sure. tell a little? So what, yeah, what, tell a little bit about, more. What happened was they had figured out, they figured this out nationally, but in Boston, it was the way they dealt with it that was different. And nationally, they figured out in the United States, certainly by the 1960s, that the schools weren't equal by any means. That if you went to public schools, and um, that's, yeah, if you went to public schools in the United States, the black schools, the African-American schools, the schools that had, um, not large non-white populations had uh, less quality in every way, shape, or form. They had crappier books. They had crappier facilities. They had worse toilets. They had worse everything. And no matter what everybody tried to do in Boston to desegregate the schools, to make the schools accept students, make white schools accept students of colors, color, this Boston school committee fought them. They fought against it and fought against it and fought against it and fought against it. So in 1974, a judge decreed by federal order that the students of two schools were going to swap population, significant parts of their population. So the school in the whitest, poor, poor, whitest poor neighborhood, South Boston, was going to swap was going to swap 50 percent of its poor population with the school in the uh, most predominantly African-American neighborhood called Roxbury. And the students were going to be bused from their homes to the other schools. That was the solution that they came up with to end, to end segregation in the Boston public schools. It was met with, to say it was met with resistance would be the understatement of the year. Um, it was met with furious resistance. The students in South Boston decided to just boycott. They, wouldn't gonna, they weren't going to go to school. So they didn't go to school. And the students in Roxbury who were bused into South Boston, when they were bused in, um, they were met with protests. They were met with violence. They were met with people throwing rocks and bricks at the buses that they were in. Um, and these were kids. And, um, and that was an explosive process that continued throughout the city of Boston um, for the next three or four years the violence was still very high. And then the resistance to it continued and continued and continued to this day, pretty much. 
what was it like for you growing up in Boston? Well, again, it was in some ways it was great. In some ways, I I loved. I grew up right on the other uh, on uh, just. I grew up just south of South Boston, like literally a half a mile south of South Boston. So I um, I grew up in a neighborhood that was very working class, um, pretty high crime, but very tight knit. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was in so many ways, a wonderful place to grow up. I loved it. Um, but what busing did was it ripped off the top of the racist heart that was kind of beating in the world that I grew up in. And that was really hard for me to deal with and to process. So, uh, yeah. I bet it was just surprising. Did, uh, is with, when you grew up and there's stuff happening with um, desegregation, et cetera. Um, did you find it surprising that some people that you know turn out that there was a lot of hatred within them? If you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. Was, was it very oh. surprising for you and your family to go, oh, we didn't know you had that in you? You know, that's, I bet that was, you know, very shocking and, and yeah. somewhat and disheartening. You're trying to reconcile people who you like, people who you maybe look up to, people who are very kind to you, very sweet to you, very nice to you, um, kind of people who would help you shovel your walk, the kind of people who would help you, you know, push your car down the street when the engine breaks down. I mean, these are, you know, good people. And yet, then you bring up the idea of African-American children going into their school system and they turn into demons i mean it was just the, the racism was staggering and the hatred was right out in front it wasn't like now where we code it and how are you um, dealing with now going on to the novel how are you dealing with the reception so far with small mercies because from what i've gathered from doing research and reading the book and everything it is brilliant it is absolutely fantastic mm-hmm. um not a problem and yeah. from what i've seen it's been well received, not just well received. Yeah. I mean, yeah. a lot it of people is. love it. It. it has been. It's been. It's been gratifying and a little surprising and really gratifying. And uh, when you write something from a personal place, which this obviously came from, um, to see it be received with such open arms and warmth. That's that's great, man. That feels fantastic. I got, um, you know, I'm, I I can't, you know, at the end of the day, a writer wants to connect. That's what you want to do. You want to connect. You're writing out into a void and you want at some point for the void to say, hey, I got you. This, this feels like the void got me. So it's like understood me. So it's like, great. And I, spe- I there was one guy that I was watching on YouTube, can't remember his name, and he said, I hope this book turns into a film, a film sooner rather than later. Uh, has anyone come up to you and said, oh, this should be a film straight away? I bet y- your response was, oh, another book of mine going into a film? car. give me a break. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, this is actually something that I've already, um, I have sold this to Apple TV, who I did the TV show Blackbird with, mm. and we're going to do this as a limited um, television show. Oh, no way. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I, I look. I really look forward to seeing that then. Yeah. And so, when it comes to the other um, adaptations of of your books, yeah. you've had Mystic River, obviously Shutter Island, Gone Baby Gone, Live by Night. Um, which one was more personal for you? Which film that based on your book was more personal for you? Would you say? Well, um, the drop because I wrote the script. Uh, was was certainly um, one that I I was very personally invested in. Um, uh, but I would say Ben Affleck's Shotgun Baby Gone, um, not only in the city of Boston, but within the very neighborhood where I had set it, where I grew up. It's the neighborhood where I grew up. Um, the opening shot is literally one block over from the street in the opening shot is one block over from where I grew up. So, um, so that had a, a personal, uh, that certainly had, has a personal affinity for me. When I watched that 
film, I can sit there and just go, oh, yeah, that's where Mr. So-and-so lived. And that's where I almost got hit by a car. And that's where, you know, all those things. It's your life playing out on film. So that's kind of cool. That was kind of cool. But all the films are are beyond that. I, 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 I think all the films are what you want, which is as a writer, you just want the sort of essence of your work, the spirit of it to be translated to screen. You want it to be, you know, um, the heart of your book transferred. It can't be the whole body because the, if you transfer the whole body, it'd be like a 10 hour film. So you just want the heart of your work to be out on the film. On, on film and that's that's what I got every single time I got that with Mr. Gribber I got that with Shutter Island I got that with Live By Night I got that with God Baby Gone so very happy with the adaptations with the going on mentioning the adaptations with when you mentioned the drop obviously James Gandolfini was in it and it was one of the last films yeah. that he was in before he sadly passed away um what was your experience like with James Gandolfini, did you ever get the chance and opportunity no, to? Jim, Jim and I never met. We, we no, no. notes to each other. We uh, we planned one night to go out to dinner and uh, it all fell through at the last minute. And then so we kept the last thing we ever said to each other was I'll see at the premiere. You know what I mean? Like we texted that to each other. Um, and then that didn't sadly didn't happen. Um, but I, I do take credit for one thing, which is. I was also a producer on that film. There were three actors in running for that part and they were about to pass on, on Jim. And I chose that to be my line in the sand. I chose that to make that my fight on this show, on that, on that movie. And so I just said, um, you gotta do, you gotta do Gandolfini. You have to do Gandolfini. And they were like, well, these other actors and I'm like, these other actors are fine, but they're not perfect. He's perfect. And they said, he, he might be a little too on the nose. And I said, yeah, a little too on the nose sometimes just means perfect. He's perfect. Let him play this part, please. They they cast him. And I immediately wrote, I added probably another, I'm trying to think, at least another like six pages of dialogue just for Jim. Because I was like, when you got somebody that good, that's like somebody hands you a Ferrari, you're going to drive it you know <laughs> like, yeah like, so i was like i want this i i just you know tom hardy had asked me to scale his dialogue back which was great because tom thinks on screen better than almost any actor alive you can see the wheels turning in his head you know what's going on through the silence that's why he could do mad max fury road and only have 10 lines of dialogue and i feel like with jimmy it was let's do let's go the other way Let's let's see somebody who can just really let it rip when it comes to dialogue. So I gave him all sorts of fun things to do. He was great. So fun. Any any actor because your books have been made by the giants of know, the film industry. I'm I'm jealous of you, man. You've had Martin Sco Martin Scorsese. You've had Clint Eastwood, Ben Affleck. You've had mm -hmm. Sean Penn, Tim. That the names can go on. Yeah, I, I'm I'm there going, dude. How did this happen? Like, no, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's 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 a it's a ridiculous level of luck. <laughs> but I will say the one thing I the only thing I ever say when it comes to the adaptations of my work because people are like, well, you know, how do you is because the the book's so good. I'm like, no, it's Hollywood screwed up more books than you can count. It's not me. It's them. It's them. It's the people who made the movie. But. What I the only thing I take credit for is I'm very, very selective about who I sell to. I don't just sell to a studio. I don't just not going to just say to Warner Brothers, yeah, take my book and do whatever you want with it. I hold out until the people involved are are the type of quality I want to work with. And that's what happened with Ben Affleck. And that's what happened with Clint Eastwood. And that's what happened with um I'd gotten involved with Mike Metavoy, who because Mike Metavoy had produced some of my favorite films, including Apocalypse Now. It was Mike Metavoy and a guy named Brad Fisher who got the script to, to Cap Leonard, uh, Leo DiCaprio, and DiCaprio who got it to Scorsese. That's how Shutter Island happened. It's who you get involved with. It matters. It really matters. Are you looking for the perfect bracelet for a loved one? Would your man be interested in a personalized keyring from his children? Are you looking for the best priced jewelry, whether it be a necklace, ring, earrings, 
bangle or even more, look no further than Crafted Arts. Crafted Arts is a local business based in Barry within the Vale of Morgan, and they have a range of all the perfect items you need. If it's for the perfect gift for an anniversary, or maybe it's for someone's birthday, maybe something for Christmas, or you wanted to give someone that perfect gift that will last a long time, Crafted Arts it's the business for you. If you want to know more or see what they have in stock, then you can visit them locally at 29 High Street, Barry, Villag Morgan, CF627EB. Or you can go onto their website at www.craftedarts.co.uk. You can even email them at info at craftedarts.co.uk or maybe just give them a call at 077-89-94248. Trust me, it's worth it for the perfect gift. The best thing about Creative Space is that we don't just want to encourage people in being creative in TV, film or even theatre. We also want you to be creative in a variety of other things as well. So do you want to have experience in making jewellery? Do you want to pick up a hobby but do not know what to take or where to start? Then look no further than the Veil Jewellery Workshops. Veil Jewellery Workshops provides the best experience in teaching you how to make the best sterling silver jewellery. They will help you make a range of silverware including rings, bracelets and many more pieces. You will learn the basic silversmith skills such as soldering, texturing, shaping and lots more. Not only do the workshops provide the experience for adults, it also provides the best experience and fun for children as well. So if you want to learn on how to make sterling silver jewellery and if you're very interested, go onto their website at www.veildewerryworkshops.co.uk or get in touch with them via email at info at veildewerryworkshops.co.uk or even phone them at 07789794248. When I watched the CBS morning interview that you had, mm -hmm. um, they mentioned uh, the, the interviewer mentioned Clint Eastwood and Martin Scorsese. And you mm -hmm. turned around and uh, you said that you were a bit more um, drawn back on Clint Eastwood than Martin Scorsese because you said, oh, it's Martin Scorsese. Yeah, of course, I'm going to have my book be uh, directed, you know, the book be directed by him right. into a film, etc. But with Clint Eastwood, you, you said something um, down on the line of, hmm, I, I, you wasn't so sure. No, not because right. of Clint Eastwood. No, 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 no. no. Yeah, I, I was going to say. Clear on that. We'd be, be super clear on that. I love Clint Eastwood as a director. Um, a Perfect World is one of my favorite films. Uh, I love Josie Wales. I love so many Clint Eastwood films. So when Clint came along, I was like, well, I'll at least take his call because the point was I did not want to sell Mystic River under any circumstances to anybody. And so that was back 20 years ago. And I just was like, no, they're going to, they, Hollywood will F this up. Hollywood's going to mess this up. So, uh, I started taking phone conversations with Clint Eastwood because he's Clint Eastwood for God's sakes. Mm. And he convinced me. He was like, I'm not. And that's maybe where I got this idea because he's like, I'm not a studio. I'm Clint Eastwood. I make these, I will make this the way this, he, he, the magic words he said to me is this isn't a mystery. This is a tragedy as a story. And I said, if you get that and you're going to hold that ending, he said, I won't let anybody screw up this ending. And 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 the studio pushed back against him, and he said, "Fine, I'll I'll find half of." They cut his budget in half, so he went and he got the other twenty million someplace else. That's because you Clint Eastwood, you can do that. <laughs> He's Clint Eastwood, motherfucker. <laughs> when when I've I haven't seen Mystic River in a long, long time, but the one scene that always sticks out in my mind is that famous scene where. Sean Penn is being held back and he's screaming, is that my daughter yeah, in my there? Daughter. Right. Right. Oh my God. How, how did you find that scene when you watched it for the first time? Oh, exactly. You know, it was great. It was one of those rare times where you're sitting there and you're saying, um, oh, I got that scene played out exactly as it was in my head. That's kind of cool. You know, that exactly like I wrote it. Um, and Sean, I think, even chipped the tooth of one of the extras who was playing with the pops who held him back. He 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 actually elbowed the guy in the mouth. Um, so yeah, no, that was great, that was wonderful. Uh, I was really very happy with the way that Mr. Griffith turned out. So, yeah, 
I bet he didn't yeah. get. The, I bet they actually didn't get his teeth fixed. Yeah, no, I got elbowed in the in the teeth by I, Sean Penn. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But... <laughs> um, the the other scene is on Chateau Island that always stood out for me because I'm a big um world war ii enthusiast I, I love looking to all the nooks and crannies of world war ii and obviously and of course it was the uh the Dachau liberation of the camp and Dachau in shutter island um was it was it always gonna be did you what was the intentions of using you know that experience in shutter island when you wrote the book and then when it was going to be depicted in the film well i was trying to get it um you know, a man whose life has been, you know, riven by violence, by 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 insane levels of atrocity. And what happened at Dachau, which is well documented, is that when they when the when they showed up, um, the liberation troops showed up, they found the camp, they found they had no idea what they were gonna be walking into. They found all of these bodies stacked up for incineration at the train station. Um, they were kids, they were 19, they were 20, the, the soldiers. And they, um, the, the people who ran the camp, the Nazis who ran the camp, um, were uh, not putting up any resistance. They dropped their guns and, this, and the American soldiers um, lined them all up and executed them on the spot. And that's a war crime. And yet they were never convicted. They were never even charged because the the level of man's inhumanity to man, the level of evil that these kids were seeing, was so astronomical that um, that you know it, uh, they couldn't they couldn't quantify it. And so Teddy, to me, in in Shutter Island, is a guy who's you know they talk about the greatest generation over here. I don't know if you have that phrase over there, but it's the people who fought in World War II, and. And they're considered the greatest generation and they were the heroes and they saved the world and they came back and they they just put it all behind them and they went to work. And the truth is that those guys didn't put it all behind them. They came back home. A lot of them died of early heart attacks. They um, they, you know, they they had a very rough life. Nobody, you know, everybody says, well, they never talked about it because nobody wanted them to. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Nobody wanted yeah. them to. So. um you know, I, I was trying to look at that greatest generation, if you will, through Teddy and 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 the consequences of that and um, and the price of that, of that type of masculinity, if you will. Mm. You know, it was it was funny because um, it just reminded me of a story that my, my great grandfather endured during the Second World War. He was in the Merchant Navy and mm -hmm. and what had happened was his his ship got sunk. And it was um, off the coast, a, a group of Americans uh, picked him up, saved him. They brought him back and they gave him a, a, a few few quid, a few dollars to say, right, get your ass home back to the UK. Um, but the, the ship that he went on went to Scotland. So he had to go from Scotland all the way down to, to England and try to get into uh, to Wales. But during that period, um, he... He was not, he got to a point where he, I think he got to England, somewhere in England. And the Salvation Army, even though they were supposed to be helping all the, uh, uh, all the servicemen, he went up yeah. and said, I, I, I've run out of money. I can't get back to Wales. Could you help me out? And they just turned around and said, no, because you, you're not part of the army. You're not even, you're not in the Royal Navy. You're not in the army. You're in the merchant. We don't right. help. And he was just like, what? Wow. And yeah. he, he eventually got back. Um, and it just, for some weird, strange reason, it just popped into my head. And uh, I was like, oh, wow, I, I need to tell the story. But it, yeah. but years after, and this is my, what my grandfather told me, they were out in a pub somewhere in, in Barry, And so there was my great-grandfather and it was my, my grandfather and a group of friends. And all of a sudden, a, a Salvation Army member came in and whatever he said or whatever whatever he said i don't know but my great grandfather just snapped and went for the guy <laughs> <laughs> and he, he went yo and went to go for him my and my grandfather had to hold him back and he was like yeah you better leave but this poor guy was just stood there going sure. i don't know what this problem is right and 
And yeah, it, it was just for some weird reason how I even it popped into my mind. That always yeah. stood out for me. And another one as well, when you were speaking of um, Campton ever, it was on my grandmother's side, her father, um, he's got a tattoo. And I, now the thing about my grandmother's father, and I think I get this from him because I'm a potential playwright. Um, he's a bit of a storyteller. You don't uh-huh. know, you don't know what is true and what is false with him. He's yeah, a, that's most good, good storytellers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And you, you don't know what is accurate with him. But he did fight uh, in in World War Two. He was in the Navy, and he's got a tattoo. Now, normally, uh, I think it's like a, a bluebird. If you've got a bird on your hand, uh, that's like a, a symbol to say that you were part of the um, you were a prisoner of war. Um, but the, for the life of me, I think he said he was a German prison uh-huh. camp. But I and the, the problem is, he passed away in two thousand and three. And I've always asked my grandmother, well you know, did he ever mention about being POW, prisoner of war, et cetera? And she would go, oh, yeah, but we didn't believe every one word he said because <laughs> he he said he punched a, a Nazi guard and had to be thrown into this. He he did this. He did that, you know, and he, and the thing is, it was like these stories, whether or not they're true, they're so interesting. And sure. for yeah. some reason, my, my great-grandfather on my grandmother's side, uh, he'd always say, yeah, I was POW, so watch out, Reese. And, <laughs> and he and he would always do a trick with his with his false teeth, do a little scary uh, thing, would freak me out. My great grandma would come in with a roll up piece of paper and whack him across the air with it, going, "Stop it! Leave the boy alone." Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, when it comes to writing, uh, uh, your stories, the books, and everything, is there a particular book view when you look back on that took? longer than the rest i i know a lot of writers say oh no it 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 doesn't take one doesn't take the longest it does it it's not about how long it takes you know it's the it's the process but for you which one was the most i'd say challenging and the one that took the longest for you um well uh, I mean, every single book has been different. Uh, the longest was probably The Given Day. It's the longest book I ever wrote. It it uh, took place in 1919, so it needed a ton of research. Um, and it was a big, huge, sprawling epic. I mean, it was 704 pages when it was published. So, yeah, that was the longest. That took me uh, five years. Mm-hmm. Um, but you never, you just literally never know. You never know which book is going to, which idea I've had ideas that just flowed right out um, and and the books came out pretty much structurally as they were in my head. I mean, as they were, as they as they show up in a bookstore. Um, and then there were other books that come out in the first draft. And, and if you finally get the first draft after two, three years and it's and it's an absolute disaster and you got to go and redo it and redo it another time and redo it a fifth time. And you just never know. It's book by book. It's mm. very it's a very difficult um it's very, it's a very difficult thing to do to write a good book. I don't know. I don't know how else to put it. Um, so, or at least it is for me. Yeah. Yeah. You teach as well. If no, I'm right. no, no, not I anymore. No, I haven't taught in a while. Yeah. Um, you, I mean, you, I, run you, writers, I run writers rooms for TV shows. So that's kind yeah. of teach. But yeah, no, I'm taught in a long time. <laughs> yeah. Been so much money now. And nah, I screw the teaching. No, no, it's not that. I was teaching. I, know, I taught. I taught after I became successful. I taught as a way of giving back. But mm. after a certain point, um, I just uh, no. It just it just it was too. It was too much work for and pulling me away from the work I love the most. So, all right. And one of the things that I was actually going to ask you is, um, you did an interview recently, and someone asked about. Uh, something to do with the plot, developing plots and characters and everything. Um, am I right in saying that that you were not a fan of developing plot? Plot's not really your strongest point, but characters. No, no, are... no, 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 no. That's that's no. no. So plot that's is not saying. plot is not my strongest point. I'm mm. very much. I come from character, character, characters. All I care about. Um, but what happens is, I understand why people read. People read to be tell, told a very good and compelling story. So um, I began to study plot because when I was t- when I was a student, nobody would talk about it. Nobody would teach it. 
So I began to study it and think about it a lot so that I could teach it. And, and that's helped me a lot because now when I write, I can look if the, if the book feels flabby or the book feels like it's, it's spinning all over the ice, if you will, then I, I can say, okay, I need to tighten this plot. I need to, I need to really hone in on it, but, but it's not where I naturally go. Naturally, I just want to tell a story about people. And if they were just two people sitting in a room all day, I'd be fine with that. But I know most readers aren't. So. Have there been any little bit of a fun question for you now? Has there been any uh, films that you grew up watching that have left a profound effect on you that made you become a writer that you are that you are now? Oh, sure, sure, sure. I'm a big, I'm a big movie fanatic. So, um, you know, certainly uh, all of Martin Scorsese stuff, certainly uh, the great Francis Ford Coppola films of the 70s, Godfather 1, Godfather 2, Conversation, Apocalypse Now. Um, uh, a movie that I, I, I think of as a, as a great um as a perfect example of what I want to do with my art is the crying game. Neil Jordan is the crying game mm. um, because it's super smart. It has a lot of things to say, not only about my ethnic background, which is the Irish culture, Irish people, the Irish nature. It also has a lot to say about, um, uh, you know, sexual politics racial politics and yet it's the craziest most wildly entertaining movie one of the most wildly entertaining movies ever made and that's what i want to do i don't uh you know francis ford coppola in the documentary hearts of darkness when he's talking about making um uh apocalypse now he says you know i i don't want to make a film i want to make a movie and that's saying he wants it to be entertaining. You want you want to make something that's just grandly entertaining, but it also has some things to say. That's what I want to do. I want to write books. I want to write scripts. I want to write. I want to make TV shows that are extremely compelling and entertaining. That's their first job. And then their second job, I hope, is that once you've had all that fun, you think, oh, there was a lot going on there. And you can talk about it with your friends or with your wife or with your husband or with whoever. And, and you can get excited about some of the ideas that were in there within this plot. So like small mercies is a perfect example. Small mercies is a book at its base level. It's about a woman who is a chain smoking, foul mouth, alcoholic racist who goes on a uh, mission to find out what happened to her daughter. And nobody will stop her. Nobody will help her, but she will allow nobody to stop her until she gets her answer. And God help you if you get in her way. And that's the story. Now, within that story is also a story about racism and a story about the, the culture that I grew up in, the story about tribalism and a story about desegregation and a story about civil rights. I mean, that's all in the stew. But the first law of that story is this is about one badass woman who's going to go kick the shit out of everybody in her way until she finds out what happened to somebody she loves. Mm. That So those two together is what I love in every story I read, in every movie I see. I, I love the stories that that involves with the hero where they say, do not get in this person's way. Otherwise, there's going to be hell to pay. I, I always, there's all those kind of um, movies and books that have that story plot where it's personal, um, just to get, but a bit like Taken, if you will. Sounds a bit um, a bit like Taken, but it's just those kind of uh, stories where it's like, oh, you're in for quite a treat. You're rubbing your hands oh, one together. Of the greatest, one of the greatest British uh, crime films, one of the greatest British films, in my opinion, is Get Carter with Michael Caine. And that's that's the you know that's what that is. Carter mm. goes back home to bury his brother, and he doesn't like the circumstances of what may have happened to his brother, and he starts looking into it. And Carter's a bad, bad, bad human being. He's just basically muscle for the mob, 
And the darker he goes, the, the, the darker the story gets, the, the more he starts to uncover, the more you start to root for the bad guy. And I think that's just cool as hell. I love stories like that. Mm. Growing up, I mean, when I was seven or eight years old, uh, my uncle used to have drawers of um, DVDs. Yeah. One of the first films that I took from it, um, from his drawer and put it on was Scarface. At eight years old. And I years old. And I told the story before, but it, it was funny because when I went to school, the following day, I got into so much trouble that because um, I, I turned around and called uh, the t- the teacher a, a fucking cockroach. Oh great! <laughs> yeah, I was like great, and I got sent home, and um, my my grandmother had to come and pick me up. But uh, as I went to pick up my bag and my coat, I walked back into the classroom, and the teacher was like, "Richie, you're not supposed to be here." And everyone just looked at me. I went, "So say good night to the bad guy," and I wasn't even seen. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even seen from school for another week. Oh, films leave, leave a profound effect on you, and yeah, and then, but every time I've 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 spoken about this as well. When people ask me about my favorite films, I mean the top three always for me is The Godfather, uh, Jaws, and Pulp Fiction. And people always go, "Why Jaws?" Jaws is was, a great film. Jaws like, is great. Jaws is freaking awesome. It's about. Yeah, it's, I mean, for me, my favorite character is always uh, the, the chief of police. You know, Roy Scheid is a character, yes, really. and I just and I yeah, Brody, and I love the scene because it gets it doesn't it it becomes a, a it goes from being a community problem to a personal vendetta because I love the scene where um, after the shark attacks one of the uh, uh, civilians and it leaves this the chief's um, Brody's son in a bit of a shock and they're pulling him onto the back onto the beach. And it's just that scene where Brody looks at his son and he just looks up and the camera's on him and it just looks out into the distance and it cuts to the water. And I thought that is the perfect moment to say, this is personal. Now you've, you've touched my family. Now I'm coming after you. And I don't know why a lot of people don't even, they mention about the, the shark blowing up. They mention about, um, uh, the scene where they're getting drunk and having a sing song, but that is my favorite scene altogether because it perfectly just changes the whole plot of being a community problem to now a personal problem. Personal like, problem, yeah, yeah, that's good, and that's another reason. So when when you do give a just go last couple of questions as well, Dennis, and yeah. thank you so much for being on a podcast. Cool. I've had fun uh, talking to you about your book and all the other projects that you've done. Um, when when it comes to people always come up, coming up and asking for advice, what is the one crucial advice you would give to people? Well, if you want to be a writer, you got to read. I mean, that's, that's one of the first things. And I'm, I, that sounds so simple, but you know, the more, uh, the more technology takes over our lives on a regular basis, I, I do notice that, you know, a lot of people don't read and then yet they want to be a writer. We well, can't do it. You just can't. If you don't read, don't try to become a novelist or a short story writer. You could maybe become a screenwriter if you watch a lot of movies. Sure. But um, I'm always shocked by that. Uh, so if you if you're going to be a, if you really want to be a writer, read. Um, otherwise, uh, I would say depersonalize it as much as you can because it's really hard to learn and it takes a long time. I believe in the 10 year rule. I believe very strongly in it. And it takes 10 years or 10,000 hours to really get good at this and, and to really know what you're doing. And I say that not only as a novelist, but it then took me another 10 years as a screenwriter. So it took me 10 years to figure out how to be a novelist. Then once I was a novelist for, quite a while then I got a job on the wire and HBO's the wire and and I didn't know I had enough skills to be capable at it but I didn't feel like I mastered screenwriting really mastered it until 10 years later when I was working on a show here called uh, Mr. Mercedes so um if if you understand that if you accept that then just check your ego at the door and and try to learn. 
just learn, mm -hmm. suck it all in everything you can. You want to be a screenwriter, watch every great movie you can find. See if you can get your hands on the scripts. They're not hard to find online. Watch all the great television that's out. You know, um, learn, 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 soak it up, learn, try and do it, try and do it. And if you can take a class or two or three, that's my advice. Mm. What's the um, the best advice you've ever had from an author, a screenwriter, a director, etc.? My first teacher, when I was 16 years old, my first writing teacher um, told me, uh, a writer never explains. Once you've done your work, it's out of your hands. And and everything anything you say about it once it's left your hands is pointless. It's all in the book or it isn't. And I love that. When you mention Mr. Mercedes, I gotta mention Stephen King. Yeah. I mean, the, the man of the hour, the man of the power when it comes to writing books and writing horror. Um, is have you ever met Stephen King? If so, yeah. 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 What yeah. is the most yeah. what is your fond memories of Stephen King? Uh, I almost killed him in a golf cart once. Um, I was, uh, we were in a, he did a, uh, he gave a wonderful um, uh, speech at a writer's conference I was running in Florida. He showed up, he was wonderful. He gave, he donated, um, We it was a ticketed event. He donated all the money that was brought from the event to my writer's program. Uh, this is when I, you know, still taught regularly. And we had to get from a dinner to the venue. And this was on a campus in Florida, a college campus. And we had a golf cart. And we were driving in the golf cart, like re way too fast to get him to the venue. And we hit a pothole, like a big hole in the middle. Of it. And that, that whole golf cart went completely sideways and then popped back down again. But for a second, we looked at each other like, we could have died. Like this thing could have flipped, like, <laughs> and I would have been known for the guy who killed Stephen King. Like that, that just wouldn't have been that wouldn't have been cool. So, uh, so that was that's that's my most memorable moment with Steve. But I did. I ultimately would do three adaptations. I did Mr. Mercedes. I did End of Watch, which became season two of Mr. Mercedes, and I did um, uh, The Outsider for HBO. So, I've done a lot of Stephen King stuff. Oh, jealous, man. Absolutely jealous. <laughs> well, look, this was great. Thank you so much. No worries. One last question, though, Dennis. I always yeah. ask my guests this. Yeah. How do you look back on your career? Happily. Very happily. I feel very <laughs> blessed. I feel very lucky to have had this career. Um, I feel lucky to have built it the way I built it. And and I feel grateful for the people who, um, who accepted me for... That because I'm not a brand, I don't have a brand. I don't have a a very specific book that I put out every year. Um, and people just allowed me to range far and wide, and I love that. And I love that. But I just I couldn't be happier. I couldn't be more grateful for the career I have. <laughs>
in a variety of other things as well. So do you want to have experience in making jewelry? Do you want to pick up a hobby but do not know what to take or where to start? Then look no further than the Veil Jewelry Workshops. Veil Jewelry Workshops provides the best experience in teaching you how to make the best sterling silver jewelry. They will help you make a range of silverware including rings, bracelets and many more pieces. You will learn the basic silversmith skills such as soldering, texturing, shaping and lots more. Not only do the workshops provide the experience for adults, it also provides the best experience and fun for children as well. So if you want to learn on how to make sterling silver jewelry and if you're very interested, go onto their website at www.veildewerryworkshops.co.uk or get in touch with them via email at info at veildewerryworkshops.co.uk or even phone them at 07789 794248.